0: If you have your Bible, grab it, or cell phone, whatever, turn to Luke chapter 18, we're going to continue on our sermon series here, and um, as you do, I wanted to remind you this morning that what we read in the Bible is not just, like when we go through it on Sunday morning, it's not just a passage that stands in isolation, that when you open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you have are spiritual biographies, you have like stories that are carefully placed where they are um, in a broader context, so by the authors um, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by the, as they were guided by the Holy Spirit, and they're they're meant to show us something. And so when we look at a passage on Sunday morning, it's really easy to see it just on its own. But this morning, and perhaps in this chapter of Luke, I'm feeling the kind of interconnectedness of everything in the gospel of Luke. So we're going to actually begin where we started last week because when we have these stories, these gospel accounts, they are usually connected to something that happened previously. And sometimes they fit in both places. So I have this like illustration here of like a chain and this chain, so you see like this is just chapter 18 verses 1 through 14, you kind of need 15 to 17 to understand what happens in verses 1 to 14. Does that make sense? Well, you also need 15 to 17 to understand what happens in verses 18 to 30. And and so forth with verses 31 to 34, it kind of fits in both places. And so we're going to actually back up. And you might say, Don, this is great. Why are you telling me this? Well, I'm telling you this for two reasons. One, I want you to understand why we're looking at a passage we looked at last week once again and because i want you to understand that when you read your bible in the morning or whenever you read it you're looking at passages that fit in a context and to, we can't always understand what's happening here until we understand what happens before it or afterwards so with that we're going to look at luke chapter 18 we're going to start back in verse 15 which is where we ended last week if you were here And we're going to look at a well-known story about a young rich man who was a ruler. And we are going to see, and what I want us to walk away with is this simple truth, that the kingdom of God is not for good people. It is for dependent people. The kingdom of God is not for the rule followers. It's for the people who rely on Jesus. So with that, let's Look at verse 15 through 30 together. Luke writes, people were bringing infants to him, so he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he that is a rich young ruler became extremely sad, for he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we sang it. We need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. We need you now, Jesus. Would you give us your spirit so that we might hear what your word says, so that we might apply your word to our hearts, and so that we might live your word in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up right where we left off last week with models of dependency. Last week, Jesus is telling the story. He got parents bringing their children to him, asking for a blessing. The disciples keep shooing the parents away. Hey, no, don't bother Jesus, but Jesus tells them, hey, let the children come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And that unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus kind of sets up these models of dependency that if you want to know what it looks like to live dependent on God, you look at children. Kind of a bizarre illustration, but it makes sense. Kids are completely dependent dependent on their parents for everything. We talked about this last week. Kid cries, we respond, right? Kid knows they need something. So they just cry out and they're eager to accept the help of someone else. Kids are model of dependency. If you have kids at all, you just know this. If you don't have kids, let me clue you in a little bit because once you do have kids, if God blesses you with kids, you will go through the why stage of parenting where kids ask a million why questions, right? And we see their dependency come out in their questions. I was riding in the car with Gavin, and he he asked a question, well, why this? And then you tell him, and he says, well, why that? And then you kind of goes on and on. There's a million questions understanding why, because they don't know, and they're figuring out the world. Uh, To humor myself, I was looking online at other things kids say. That's kind of funny. One parent writes that after first grade orientation, their six-year-old sat in the car, got in, sat down, got in his seatbelt or car seat or whatever, and said, Mom, there's no nap, no snack time, and I will have homework. Who the H-E-double hockey stick signed me up for this? (laughs) Another mom writes that her six-year-old, she said, I love you. And the mom said, I love you too. And the six-year-old says, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to my donut. <laughs> and then another parent said, her child one day was sitting at the kitchen counter and she asked, he asked, Mom, is chicken the animal spelled the same as chicken the food? And the mom said, my child's world is about to be shook, <laughs> Right? But these are examples. Kids don't know. They just rely on their parents. And there's silly stories that people post on Twitter or whatever. They just rely on their parents for everything. Well, well, these are, these are the models. This is what dependency looks like. Where you kind of look to God and rely on him for everything. God, I got questions about the world. What do you think about this, God? God, I don't understand what's going on. What do you? I'm trusting in you, God where you just kind of call out to him and trust that he is the one you can rely on. And as a baby is fully dependent on their parents, Jesus calls us to be fully dependent on God. Because the kingdom of God is not for good people. It's for dependent people. Enter the rich young ruler, and this is where we see the obstacles of our dependency on God. First obstacle of our dependency on God is personal piety. Personal piety, personal devotion. Seriousness about God can sometimes be an obstacle to dependency upon God. The rich young ruler comes in, he asks Jesus a question, Jesus, and listen, nothing... What about the, what the rich young ruler is about to ask says that he's trying to catch Jesus in a gotcha question like the Pharisees sometimes do. They're trying to trap Jesus. He just comes to Jesus with a real honest question. Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Good teacher. It's a deep question. It's a question I think we all have. How do we live forever? What goes on beyond here? How do I become a part of it? It's like you feel for him. He has a real sincere question. And so he comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to get there? And we see his first obstacle on display. Because Jesus, being the master conversationalist that he is, and also the like he's so discerning, engages him. He doesn't scold him, he doesn't write him off. He doesn't slap his hand and say, you don't do anything. Follow me. He doesn't do any of that. He asks a question. Why do you call me good? This is in verse 19. And then he says, no one is good except God. And then he presses in further. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And just to note, If you know God's law, the Old Testament Ten Commandments, the first four are about how we relate to God. That's like, have no other gods before me, no idols, don't um, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, don't take the Lord's name in vain. In the second table of the law, the second half of the law, is all of this horizontal relationship stuff, where we have like, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet, so forth and so on. Jesus uses all of these and he directs them at this young ruler, and says, hey, you know the commandments. And what is the response of the rich young ruler? I've done all of these things. This rich young ruler is a good dude. He is pious. He presumably takes his faith super seriously. in Jesus doesn't say he doesn't. It's interesting. He doesn't say, no, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've gotten angry. He doesn't do any of that. He just listens and takes it in. And we can kind of see in here what I would call, and what you might have heard as, a balance sheet mentality. Where we look at Jesus, we come to Jesus, and we say, God accepts me based on what I do. In you may have grown up in a church context that even teaches this, where, where your good works need to outweigh your bad ones, right? Where you come to Jesus, like the rich young ruler, and says, Jesus, what must I do to enter eternal life? And he says, and he's like, well, I've done all of that. So my good must outweigh my bad. But evidence in here is that this rich young ruler He is not dependent on Jesus. He's looking to what he does. He is dependent upon himself. I can flex my way into the kingdom of God. It's implied in his question, what must I do? Jesus is after a heart that is dependent on him. And you cannot be dependent on him if you're trusting in your own works, if you're trusting in your own religious devotion to qualify you for the kingdom of God, it just does not work that way. But Jesus, he doesn't chide, but he does keep pressing. If you have your Bible open, he says, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus goes after the real idol of his heart. Jesus goes after, in his calling out the man's one thing, he goes after the real Lord of the man's heart. And he says, the reason You're not dependent on me. is because you think there's something you can do. And because something owns your heart more than God. And what's interesting is this guy, what Jesus calls out, what, what Jesus calls out in this man is that he doesn't really love his neighbor. Jesus uses the second table of the law, all those commandments that relate to how we relate to each other. He uses those and then goes even deeper to show you don't actually love God because you really don't love the poor. You might toss them a nice, like, You know, when you walk into the grocery store, you might throw money in the Salvation Army bin, but you really don't love God because you really don't love the poor. Jesus gets after his heart. He says he lacks one thing, and the rich young ruler's personal piety made him unable to, to see the ways he was deficient. It gave him a blind spot. Because there's another way that we can be deceived. There's there's another way our personal piety can deceive us because we can look at all of the good things that we do. We can look at our church attendance. We don't commit adultery. We can look at all of the things like this young ruler did and say, God, I do all of these things. And in our focus on what we do, we don't see the big gaping blind spot in our hearts that Jesus really doesn't own. And Jesus, in his goodness, and his grace, calls out that blind spot. He calls out the rich young ruler's blind spot and says, you still lack one thing. And here's the truth, friends. We all have blind spots. And Jesus is inviting us here to turn over every area of our lives to him. Our personal piety can be an obstacle to face. We can think that we earn God's love with it, or it can make us blind to the areas of our lives that really we haven't given to Jesus. The second obstacle of dependency that we see here is wealth and idolatry. We see that something else sat on the throne of this man's heart, and that idol was money, was wealth, possessions, the idolatry of money got in the way of following Jesus. Because look at what happened. If you have your Bible open, look at what happened. He said, after he heard this, he became extremely sad for he was very rich. Jesus called him into a life of dependency. And Jesus recognized that for this man, his money was going to be the obstacle in the way. Jesus called out that obstacle. And in that moment, the man had a choice. And he could follow Jesus, believe in what he said, or he could walk away. And we see the only thing that happens here is this guy becomes sad because his heart is fixated on his wealth. His money His comfort, his possessions, kept him from Jesus. He was not willing to accept Jesus' lordship over his wealth. That was too far. But Jesus, he's not after good people. He's after dependent people. People that will just trust that what he says is true and follow him. In this guy, he didn't do that. Jesus told him, hey, you want to come follow me? Well, there's something standing in the way and that's your money. You got to get rid of it. Trust that I'm doing what's right. Trust that I'm calling you into a new life with me. And the guys just get sad. That's too far. He had an idol that occupied his heart. Idolatry. It's a church word that basically means elevating yourself or something else to godlike status in your heart so that you end up living for it. Or elevating something in a place above God. It's a good thing turned into a God thing. right? It's a good thing that we elevate and take out of order. There's an old catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God And enjoy him forever. Your chief purpose is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. Idolatry says that the chief end of man. Is to make money. And accumulate comfort for right now. Idolatry says. The chief end of man. Is to find love. And enjoy it. As soon as possible. Idolatry says the chief end of man. Is to get power. And leverage it for my benefit. That's what idolatry. Idolatry can take things and turn them into gods. Family, careers, good things that we just take out of place. And the danger here, friends, is that wealth is one of the most dangerous of idols. It is the thing that keeps the rich young ruler from Jesus. And if we're not careful and honest with our hearts, it can keep us from him too. The kingdom of Jesus is for dependent people. And sometimes in our pursuit of wealth, we make us more dependent on ourselves than we are on God. Text says the rich young ruler went away sad. And Jesus, look at verse 24, sees his sadness. And when you're reading the gospels, just one notice so what does Jesus notice? Jesus notices this guy's sadness. And it's just an aside. Jesus sees whatever is going on on your hearts. There's no hiding it from him. In this rich man, he said, seeing that he became sad, Jesus says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Some scholars believe that Jesus actually entered his own sadness when he saw the sadness of the rich young ruler and says how hard it is. Like he's pleading, it's how hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, the eye of a needle is pretty small, a camel is pretty big, that's not possible. That's exactly what Jesus wants you to say. And it's a big warning that we all need to hear that wealth can be an idol that keeps us from God, that we can live for it instead of remaining dependent on Jesus. And it's impossible, Jesus says, for them to be saved. (laughs) And if this is making you squirm a little, the people in the audience thought the same thing. They said, well, then Jesus, who can be saved? Because up until this point, we've encountered rich people that were really awful. They were awful people. They, they were people who like screwed over their neighbors They became tax collectors for Rome. Most of the rich people we've encountered so far have been terrible People, but we finally get to the rich young ruler and we have a guy who's not terrible in fact he's super religious he goes to church all the time he's faithful to his wife he has a great family and he he doesn't lie he doesn't bear false witness he is morally upright and so he and he's loaded And so if you're in the culture at the time, you're thinking, look at that guy. That guy has a favor of God upon him. He has all this money and God has rewarded him for what he has done. Truly, he is blessed by God because God sees his personal piety and he's rewarding him. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, he's not in the kingdom. In fact, he is far from the kingdom. In fact, it's impossible for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom. And you're like, well, what the heck, Jesus? Who can be saved then? And Jesus says, and he offers a word of comfort, thank God, that what's impossible for man to do is not impossible with God. His riches made him dependent on himself. But Jesus, God is the one who can save even the wealthy even those who have put other things before God, God can save them because that's what God does in the kingdom. is isn't for good people. It's for dependent people. We live in a culture that values rugged individualism, live free or die. We value autonomy, personal security, not needing anybody's help. But that kind of rugged independence, if we're not careful, can fly in the face of the teachings of Jesus and keep us from a heart that is dependent upon him. The kingdom isn't for good people. It's not for people that have it all together. It's for dependent people, people who know they need Jesus. The people at the time as who can get in. And Jesus says, well, what's impossible for you to do is not impossible for God. We saw the models of dependency in children. We saw the obstacles of dependency in piety, in wealth, and idolatry. Begs the question then, what are the benefits of dependency? Scenes come into a close. Peter says, Jesus, this is verse 28, I think. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And if you remember Jesus calling them, they did. They literally left it all to follow Jesus, trusting that what he said was true. And Jesus responds, truly I tell you, This is verse 29. There is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Jesus acknowledges Peter. Yeah, Peter, you've given up everything and there's no one who's given up everything right now that won't reap more now and in the future. Well, what does this mean? I think there's at least three things we can grab from our text this morning. The first thing, the first benefit of dependency is that you get the king. You get Jesus. You belong to him. The benefit of dependency upon God to save you and not your own works is that you get God himself. You get a relationship with. With Jesus. And that every promise that was made to Jesus. Every promise that was made to you through Jesus. Is fulfilled in him. And nothing can take that away. This means that when you're feeling tempted to run to something else for security. And your life is hard. You can say "I I still have Jesus. And nothing can take that from me. You can put everything before the lordship of Christ and know that you're safe with him. This means that when you're struggling with loneliness, that Jesus promises to be with you. This means that when temptation seems to be getting stronger and stronger and sometimes gets the better of you, you can run to Jesus in your weakness and find a savior eager to welcome you home. This means that when life is tough, when you're raising your kids, wondering if you're doing things right, trying to be faithful to God, and things don't always go the way that they should go, you know, I still have Jesus, and he is king. Jesus offers a level of personal security that no wealth can offer, no comfort can attain. Jesus offers himself and his kingship over the highs and lows the ups and downs of your life. You belong to Jesus. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is you get the family of the king. Jesus tells Peter that you'll receive, you know, anyone who gives up houses, brothers, sisters, wives, etc., will get much more. Now, Jesus isn't talking literally. Sorry if you're hoping for more wives out of this. But Jesus is saying that you will become part of a family of the king. You will become part of his family, his church, his people. Now you might wonder, Christians are weird. Why is this good? Um, Well, (laughs) we can be weird sometimes. And I'll say that when you have the family of the king, that when you belong to Christ's people, what you are supposed to have in them is a place, is a people that you can count on in every station of life. That when you're suffering, you have people to grieve with you. That when you're sinning, you have people calling you home. That when you feel defeated, you have people reminding you that you're more than a conqueror through him who loved you. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That when you're doubting, you have other people holding you in your doubts. Reminding you that Jesus has not left you, even though you question. When you screw up, you have people to remind you that you're safe. That when you're discouraged, you have people to encourage you. That when you're in financial hardship, you have people to come alongside of you and help you find help. This is the picture the Bible portrays of the people of God. And if we could flip forward and spend the next hour in the book of Acts which Luke also wrote, I could point place after place after place where God's people did these things. And if you hear them and you're like, well, the church hasn't always been that for me, we aren't a perfect people. We have Jesus as our king. And I want to encourage you to be one of these kinds of people. I pray that God makes us this kind of church where we know we're safe in the family of God. The third benefit: first, was we get the king; second, we get his family; third, clear in this passage is that Jesus promises one of the benefits is life forever with Him. the The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus basically comes to him and says, "You just got to be dependent on Me. You can't be dependent on your wealth. You can't be dependent on your goodness." Life with Jesus is made available only by the work of Jesus. And when you are dependent upon him, you get to live forever with him. This is one of the promises that will come true. And this answers the deepest question we have about what's going on with the world and what will happen after we die. Jesus says, for the dependent upon him, they get to live forever with him. And the good news is that he doesn't call good people, he calls dependent people. We started off with the rich young ruler. This story we we looked at receiving the kingdom like a child. And then Jesus gives us this story to show someone who doesn't receive the kingdom like a child. In in the next verses that Elliot will touch on next week, we'll see that the reason we can depend on Jesus is because he goes to a cross. He gets flogged, beaten, nailed, hung in humiliation so that all of us can have life. So that we know that there's nothing we can do to enter his kingdom. We just got to rely on his finished work. And like a child, cry out to him, knowing that he's the only one that can help us. One way I've read about the children relying on other people was through a guy named Russell Moore. If you don't know him, that's okay. I'll make it short. He, he adopted a couple kids from Russia. And they had to He and his wife Maria had to go back and forth to Russia to go get their kids. And they visited with the orphanage and would have to fly home and fill out more papers and go. And Russell writes about his experience in the orphanage. And he writes this. He said, the creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor or the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weak. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped, pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet in here? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and the punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. But here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls, These children didn't cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, or for love. No one ever responded to these children, and so they stopped. Dr. Moore describes how they would go into the the, uh, orphanage and and read to them and spend time with their, their kids before they would leave for the day. And they'd have to go home and wait for paperwork to clear. And on one of those last visits, he writes, after hugging and kissing their boys, we walked out into the quiet hallway. And Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Benjamin fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be Heard. Friends, this is a picture of the dependency of a child that the rich young ruler didn't have. Benjamin screamed out because he knew there was someone who could take care of him, someone to bring him home. And Jesus comes and we just have to cry out, Jesus, master, have pity on me. And we can be certain that he will. That is the hope of the gospel. So friends, if Jesus came to you today and said, and you came, Jesus, what is that one thing in my life that I need to lay at your feet? You can call out to him, Jesus, master, have pity on me and know that he will save you. I would challenge you to identify look at, the, look at your life and say what am I holding? What if, if I were the rich young ruler having a conversation with Jesus would he say you still lack this one thing I'm not Lord over this area and give that to him to cry out like a baby does and know that he will bring you home the kingdom isn't for good people It's for dependent people. We declare this dependency on the finished work of Jesus every week at River of Grace. Every week we take communion, symbols of what he did for us, reminders that there's nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. It's a reminder that we cannot accomplish our own salvation, but are dependent, wholly dependent on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to, to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper Jesus took a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to take communion. It's for those who are about Jesus, who have declared their dependency on his work. And I would plead with you to place your faith in him. And if you want to know how to do that, want to know how to follow him, see me, see David. See one of the pastors after the service. I'm going to pray and then you can come forward, take a piece of bread, take a cup, and you can take communion as you're ready. Let's pray.